0: take your Bibles, turn to the Sermon on the Mount, once again, where we have been and where we will be for a while, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we've come to a a new section after covering the Beatitudes and salt and light. My prayer this morning is following on the heels of the great message we heard Wednesday night that we'll... uh, uh, As we come down from the mount, so to speak, we'll see Jesus only, just like those disciples did in Matthew chapter 17, after seeing the king high and lifted up. By the way, the king that Isaiah saw in the sixth chapter is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that from John chapter 12, verse 41. We don't have to just surmise that and guess it. The subject this morning is the law fulfilled by Christ. The law fulfilled by Christ. It's pretty meaty stuff this morning. If you're not used to having sausage and bacon for breakfast, I hope you're going to be okay. Because we're going to get into some meat this morning. And um, I hope it will be clearly understood. That's been my prayer. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 Jesus is talking, "'Think not that I am come to destroy or abolish the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily, truly, truly, amen. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled.'" Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20 For I say unto you, this is the authority of Christ Himself, for I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case, no exceptions, Nobody's going to slip into heaven through a back door. Ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. We have studied through the Beatitudes, the first few verses of chapter 5, which constitute, as you've heard me say a number of times, a composite picture of a true Christian. These are not just recommended virtues. These are essential virtues. Then we meditated on what Jesus meant when he said that believers are salt and light. So often we just loosely assume that that means that we are to add value to society. We are to make the world a better place. That sounds high sounding. That is very cheap. That is not what those verses mean. They mean far more than that. Jesus is saying there, manifest the Christian life, both visibly and invisibly, both outwardly and inwardly, both secretly and publicly. We are salt. We are light, whether we acknowledge it and realize it or not. It's a big deal. It's a big deal for Jesus. I hope it's a big deal for us. Jesus said, if the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. Wow. He now moves on from that theme, gets into some new material, and I don't think it's stretching it, I don't think it's exaggerating at it all, to say that he, as he, he's getting into the theme of his sermon. Think of the first 16 verses as the introduction. Now we get to the body. And the body of the Sermon on the Mount is all about what? Listen carefully. It's about the righteousness that exceeds. The righteousness that exceeds. The great German Lutheran pastor and martyr of Hitler in World War II, the closing days of World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we might not have agreed with all of his theology. But he hit the nail on the head when he called this Sermon on the Mount the extraordinaire, of the Christian life. Bonhoeffer utterly repudiated what he called cheap grace, though many called it free grace. He repudiated cheap grace that teaches, and I quote, forgiveness without repentance and absolution without personal confession. Jesus is not talking about cheap grace here. Please note that the Beatitudes and Christ's words about salt and light lead naturally into the discussion we're getting into today, the body of his sermon. And I've prayed much that you will understand uh, the connection. Uh, please give me your undivided attention. I oh, we've got a few people coming in. That's fine. We'll let them find their seat. I want you to understand the connection here. If we really see the relationship between what we've talked about already and what we're going to talk about today, you'll be listening on purpose to this message. Otherwise, it'll go in one ear and out the other. Here's the line of Jesus' reasoning. And could I admit that until I studied for this message, I didn't really get it myself. Jesus is anticipating the reaction of many to his message. The greatest sermon ever preached. In the Beatitudes we have a record of the things that God extols that man generally disdains. These are all counterintuitive for the most part. The way up is down. The poor in spirit, the meek, the persecuted, these are the ones that truly inherit the earth and possess the kingdom. That doesn't make sense on the outward level. It's counterintuitive. It turns everything upside down. The conventional wisdom of millennia has been turned on its head by Christ's startling beatitudes. In other words, he's saying what man devalues, God blesses. So what does that mean? If you were listening to Jesus and you were startled by his words, would you not be asking the question, is Christ abolishing the old order? Is he inaugurating a new? Is Jesus presenting himself as a radical, as a revolutionary? May I stop and say that's exactly what is depicted in the media today. I didn't see the Super Bowl ads, but I heard about them. One organization spent millions of dollars. They call themselves He Gets Us. They had commercials during the Super Bowl, cost millions of dollars, just a couple of them, that try to appeal to the world today to depict Jesus as a refugee. He was victimized too, just like you are. He turned conventional wisdom on its head. He replaced the worn out old covenant. He refused to be bound by any rules. He just loved people. He didn't judge anybody. He gets you. That's what was depicted about Christ in the Super Bowl. It reinforces what culture wants to believe about Jesus and conveniently omits what culture does not want to believe about this Christ who was crucified by the rabble and by the chief priests and elders. So again I ask a natural question in view of what all Jesus has said so far. Is Jesus abolishing the old order and inaugurating a radically new one? The answer is, in effect, and Jesus said it, hold it, stop, time out. I'm not abolishing anything that God gave through Moses. I'm just fulfilling it. I'm simply carrying it to its highest level. And when he said that, you can be sure he had the rapt attention of his audience, and I hope I have yours. By the way, if you think that Jesus was a radical and came to turn things upside down and defy the norms and rules of the Old Testament, you are unwittingly falling into the same error as the Pharisees. Do you know that? Because whenever they came to Jesus, they tried to pit Jesus against Moses. Now, Jesus, Moses in the law said this, but what do you say? Read it several times. What were they doing? They were stressing discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. While Moses, while Jesus stressed Continuity. In their little black book that they kept on Jesus, and they kept one, as far as they were concerned, Moses represented 613 meticulous regulations while Jesus flaunted his freedom, like a lot of Christians do today. But with verse 17, Jesus says, in effect, everything that I'm about to teach you in the next however long it took, is in absolute harmony with the entire teaching of the Old Testament. Nothing contradicts nothing. But what's the flip side? Jesus says the flip side of the fact that what I'm about to teach you is in harmony with all the Old uh, uh, Testament is that what I'm about to teach you is an utter contradiction to what the scribes and the Pharisees are teaching you. They are the ones who have turned the intent of God in the Old Testament on its head. Well, y'all are quiet. Is it because you're with me? Okay, thank you. All right. Now, that's a little bit longer introduction than I usually give. But I want you to get what Jesus is saying today. It doesn't matter what Bradenburg says. Doesn't matter what Dr. Bottlestopper says somewhere else. It matters a whole lot what Jesus said. He said essentially three things as far as his relation to the Old Testament and the magnifying of the true righteousness Jesus' relation to the Old Testament and magnifying the true righteousness. I'm not claiming originality with this. This is available out there, but I have to be honest, I've never heard any message in my 66 years on this. I've never heard anyone preach on this. First of all, he insisted on the inviolability of Scripture. I would like to take verse 18 first, if I may, and I think you'll see why. For verily, truly, Jesus said, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Most modern English translations uh, don't get as technical as the King James does. And they read something like, Not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen shall pass. They don't say one jot or one tittle. In the Greek, the smallest letter is yod. The tittle is a seraph. It's a diacritical mark similar to a comma, the smallest projection from a letter. Don't turn there, but I hope you'll remember this and check later. In Psalm 119, there are 22 sections that correspond to each letter of the alphabet. They are, there's a subcaption for that. Probably in your Bible, you actually have the Hebrew letter. I do in mine. 22. If you compare the letter preceding verse 9 of Psalm 119 with a letter before verse 81, Beth and Kaf, the only difference between them is a tittle. Almost insignificant, unseeable diacritical mark. That's the only difference. And Jesus is making a strong statement here about God's protection of every letter and word. In the Old Testament. Every even insignificant little part of it. Now, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, what is he referring to? We need to understand that. This is shorthand for saying the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament. That's the only scripture they had when Jesus spoke. The New Testament had not been written yet. Jesus is employing a literary device that we know today as a synecdoche in which a part represents the whole. He did this in other places. He did this in Matthew 7 verse 12 where he gives the golden rule, whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do even so to them for this is the law and the prophets. That summarizes the Old Testament. The law, that's not just the Ten Commandments. That's the entire law, composed of its three divisions, moral, judicial, and ceremonial. The prophets refer to those books of the Old Testament in which the writer, who was a prophet, we have both major prophets, minor prophets, not referring to their significance, but to the length of their writings. The prophet went beyond merely giving the law, but he applied the law he interpreted the law. He called Israel back to observing the law and understanding it. What is Jesus saying here about the entire Old Testament that reveals the holiness and righteousness of God? Because whatever it is, it's critically important. First of all, he's saying the Old Testament, the law and the prophets are absolute. The Old Testament is absolute. In John 10, verse 35, after quoting from the book of the Psalms, Jesus said this, The Scripture cannot be what? Broken. The Scripture cannot be broken. Does that mean that men are controlled robots and cannot disobey it and break it? Do they have a gun to their head? No. But it does mean that there will be consequences if they do break it. We read in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 12, every transgression and disobedience, not just the egregious ones, every transgression and disobedience receives a just recompense and reward. That's what the Bible says. Now please listen to me carefully this morning because what I'm about to say by way of application is desperately needed in our day. It's not because of me. Number one, if we really understand this that God's standards are absolute. God's law is absolute. That means, are you listening? Are you ready? God's standards never change. End of discussion. Oh, you can talk about having compassion and, and understanding the culture and being abreast of new thought and being enlightened and all these buzzwords May I just tell you the most loving thing you can do to someone who is in danger of incurring the wrath of God is to say, don't hurt yourself, flee. God's standards never change. In the moral realm, that's true. I'm talking about any physical relations outside of marriage, adultery, adultery. Fornication, impurity of thought life, homosexuality, incest, transgenderism, cross-dressing, pedophilia, the list goes on and on. That's why we keep adding LGBTQ plus plus plus. God's standards never change, folks. It's true about the roles of men and women. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, appeals to what? In First Timothy 2, when he talks about forbidding women to be preachers, what does he appeal to? The culture? No, 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 no. He appeals to the creative order. Adam was formed first, then Eve, he says. I'm just going to go ahead on record and say it, and you may not want to speak to me after this at all. I love you. I really do. I'd love to speak to you. I'd love to reason with you. But it doesn't matter how many denominations capitulate to the culture and ordain women and ordain gays and lesbians, God's order remains the same. Let's not be intimidated. I don't know about you, but I would rather offend men than God. God. May I make a second application? It's a necessary corollary. This is misunderstood. God regulates what He never ordained. Because I say that again? God regulates what He never ordained. If you don't understand this, if you don't see this from the Scripture, you will think God's standards have changed. And that you have a greater enlightenment or are subject to seeing things with greater light and changing your position. Let me talk about what nobody talks about. Divorce. Jesus said that Moses permitted divorce for the hardness of men's hearts, but, are you listening, from the beginning it was not so. Some of the greatest soul winners in our church are divorced people. I am not knocking anybody who's divorced here. But God did not ordain divorce. He permitted it in certain situations. He regulated. The same thing is said about slavery. It could be said. Slavery has been around for thousands of years. That's in various forms. I know it was indentured servants, but back in the Hebrew economy, it was different. when we finally fought a war over it and slavery was outlawed in the United States of America. And let me go on record right away at the outset of saying, it was never God's plan. Did you hear me? It was never God's plan for one man to own another. Yet God regulated it among His people. He regulated what He did not ordain. He instilled the year of jubilee. Slaves and strangers were not to be abused. And on and on we could go about other matters that fall in the same category polygamy, servant wives, the treatment of captives, and on and on we could go. Please understand God regulated what He never ordained because His standards never change. The Scripture cannot be broken, it is inviolable. But that's not all. It is eternal. As Jesus said there in verse 18, Verily I send you, till heaven and earth pass. That's pretty apocalyptic, amen. Till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. We heard from Evangelist Coffee this week that only two things will last forever. I'm so glad he said that. The souls of men and the Word of God. And before we go any further in this message, could I ask you, are you giving your life to bring those two together? The Word of God and the souls of men? I hope so. Jesus said in, Mark, in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Notice that He equated the law with His words. Many Christians have this vague and fuzzy idea that the word, the word that will endure forever is Christ's words, not the Ten Commandments. May I remind you that in Revelation chapter 20 it paints the scene of the great white throne judgment and it talks about the books, plural, being open as well as the book of life. And the Bible says the dead will be judged out of those books according to their works, what do you think the works of sinful men will be measured against? The perfect and eternal law of God. The standard of righteousness. God's law is not absolute. Obsolete. It is absolute. Did you know that every one of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy as well. Every one of the Ten Commandments is repeated in the New Testament with the exception of the fourth. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But the eternal principle behind the fourth is repeated in the New Testament. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Hebrews 4, 9, verse 11, let us labor, let us be diligent, therefore, to enter into that rest, the rest of heaven that is signified by our rest from our works, resting in the finished work of Christ. The law of God is the expression of His moral character. Please listen to me this morning. It never changes. It will last forever in heaven. It is holy and just and good. It is God's instrument to bring conviction of sin in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Let's make sure we have clear thinking about the law of God. It's inviolable. It's eternal. The second thing Jesus made clear about the relation, his relationship to the law to the Old Testament. He pointed to himself as the one who fulfilled Scripture. Now let's go back to verse 17. We skipped it. Think not that I am come to destroy or abolish the law of the prophets. Then he said this, I am not come to destroy. I am not come to abolish but to what? Fulfill. Now what does fulfill mean? This is important understand Again, fuzzy thinking in the minds of many Christians about this. The word fulfill does not mean complete or finish. So if if you've been thinking that, please get deprogrammed. That's a false and confusing teaching that says that Christ finished or carried a stage further what the Old Testament began. No, the word fulfill does not mean carry further. Are you listening? It means carry out. Huge difference. It means to give full obedience to it. Jesus was the only man who perfectly kept the law. The only man. He lived a sinless life so that he could shed sinless blood that could atone for our sins. And that sinless life was a condemnation to the self-righteous of his day. When Jesus pointed his his finger at his accusers and said, Which of you convinceth me of sin? They were silenced on the outside, but let me tell you something. They were seething on the inside. They hated him. And they had to fabricate a charge to get him crucified. Jesus had to be made under the law. We read in Galatians 4 verse 4, made under the law by being born of a woman. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He had to perfectly keep the law so that he could, are you listening, redeem them. That's us that are under the law. Hallelujah. Jesus didn't die for his own sins. Because he was sinless, his blood atoned for sinners, us. He fulfilled the law by being the only man in 4,000 years of human history to obey that law. The law that had been first written on the fleshly tablets of conscience from Adam till Moses. Paul talks about that in Romans. The law was written on the consciences of men from Adam till Moses, but then it was written on the unforgiving tablets of stone on Mount Sinai through Moses. Jesus was the only man who perfectly kept the law. Secondly, Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. And the word end there means aim. Jesus is the aim of the law. You say, Pastor, where are those words found? Thank you for asking. Please turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 verse 4. While you're turning, let me just say that Paul introduces Some of the greatest verses on the gospel in this passage, Romans chapter 10, if you are used to uh, giving the Roman road and you're witnessing, you'll recognize several verses from this chapter. He speaks about Israel who was ignorant of God's righteousness. They sought to establish their own righteousness. They fetched a circuit to establish their own righteousness, just like Adam and Eve made those fig leaf aprons, and they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God, and then, right at this point of human failure, Paul interjects this in verse four. Don't miss it. For Christ is the end or the aim of the law for what class? Righteousness to everyone that what believes, believes or believeth. What did he mean? All right. I hope you still have your brains. You didn't check them at the door. What is the immediate end or aim of the law, God's law? Is it not to bring conviction? What did Paul say in Romans chapter 5 verse 20? Please listen carefully. For by the law is the knowledge of what? Sin. Not the knowledge of Christ, but the knowledge of sin. The law stops our mouths. The law leaves us without excuse, the Bible says. And in doing so, worketh wrath. You say, preacher, why is there such little conviction of sin in our churches in America these days? I think one of the answers is "Is there's such little preaching of the law of God. We don't hear the thunderings of Mount Sinai from our pulpits anymore. That's not passé. That's the immediate end of the law is to produce conviction of sin. But what is the ultimate aim of the law? The law is our schoolmaster, our tutor to do what? To bring us to Christ. The Ten Commandments shut us up and leave only one door open, and on the top of that door it says, Jesus. Christ is the aim, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. In the book of Hebrews it says, are you listening, please don't tune me out yet. The law can make nothing perfect. It never did and it never can. The law cannot confer righteousness. It can only show us how far short we fall of of that righteousness that God demands. What can the law do? It can do exactly what the Pharisees did who represented the law in John chapter 8 with that woman taken in the act of adultery. It can arrest us in our shame. It can fling us at the feet of Jesus but only Jesus can forgive us and declare us positively righteous. As Jesus said, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. So don't miss this. If you understood what I said so far, you'll understand what I'm about to say. So now, who or what do we deal directly with? Christ or the law? We deal directly with Christ. Because he alone has fulfilled the law. All the law and the prophets. All the Old Testament point to him. And so the sin question therefore has now become the son question. The question how can I be righteous is all wrapped up in the question of Pilate. What shall I do with Jesus? Which is called the Christ. So I ask you. What have you done with Jesus? Have you acknowledged your sinfulness? Have you acknowledged that He is perfect righteousness? Have you acknowledged your need of that perfect righteousness, repenting of your sin and believing on Him? The righteousness of God, which is by faith. Well, I'm not done. I've given you a lot of heavy truth. I would encourage you to listen to this message again. You're probably not going to get it all at one time. It's like drinking out of a fire hose, I know. One more thing about the relationship of Jesus to the Old Testament that is, this He exposed the false righteousness of others that were held in high esteem, generally. He exposed the false righteousness. That's what verse 20 is all about. Forgive me for not being able to expound today for lack of time. Verse 19, I trust I'll be able to weave it in at another time. But look at verse 20. This is a central verse. Jesus said, for I say unto you, he's acting on his own authority, he's speaking on his own authority, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. What boldness. What effrontery. What a scathing denunciation. As we say in the Cayman Islands, what a stall out. There are many, even evangelical preachers, who contend that what we need to do is just make positive statements and never criticize. Well, evidently, Jesus didn't get that memo. Because he wasn't just content with his own doctrine, his own teaching. He meant snow words in criticizing other teachings, especially those that led gullible souls to perdition. He called the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees that which leads, is, causes the blind to lead the blind. He called the purveyors of those teachings painted sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Full of extortion and excess. Wait a minute. These Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day. They believed in the verbal inspiration of the Old Testament. They were patriotic. They were religious. They were like the Sadducees who were the liberals. Why was Christ so harsh on these guys? Why was Jesus so harsh on these same people that mothers, the average mother in in Israel would have pointed out these people to their sons and said, I want you to be like that holy man? Why did Jesus do that? Let me answer first of all by saying it wasn't because they hated him. It wasn't that he was personally offended, although they did hate him, and that hatred grew. The reason Jesus was offended and was so harsh on these people was that they undermined the authority of the Word of God, and Jesus was jealous for the sake of the author, his own Father. Just a couple more things I'll say, and then I'll be done, and we'll baptize. But how did the Pharisees and some today, many today, how did they undermine the authority of God's Word? There's three ways I'd like to point out to you, and I'll be, give credit where credit is due. Uh, this, I was come across this in a commentary by the late James Montgomery Boyce. I think it's excellent. I think he hit the nail on the head, so I'm not claiming originality, but I, I hope you'll listen. How did they undermine the authority of God's Word? Number one, and some do it today, they undermine the Bible's authority by appealing to tradition. Would you turn to Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, and in verses 7 through 13, Jesus rings the number of the Pharisees on this. They were all about tradition, tradition, tradition. And Christ's principal charge against them was that in elev- elevating tradition, they nullified, they made of none effect the commandment of God. For the sake of time, I'll just read verses 9 and verse 11. In verse 9, and he said to them, full well ye reject, you set aside the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. Verse 11, or verse 13, I'm sorry, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition which ye have delivered. Did you know that 2,000 years after Jesus spoke these words, we can still be guilty of doing what the Pharisees did? Elevating tradition to biblical authority. Tradition is not a bad thing necessarily. We can have good family traditions, good cultural traditions, patriotic traditions, but they're still man-made and yet sometimes we treat them as sacrosanct. Traditions can be good. Traditions can be rich, meaningful. They bind us together. They, they pass, cause us to pass on a, a great heritage. But let's be honest and let's differentiate our traditions from the inspired commands of Scripture. I don't think any of us want to hear at the judgment seat of Christ you made my word trivial and inconsequential by your tradition. The watchword of the reformers, sola scriptura, only the Bible must become our slogan as well. Only the scriptures. The second way that the Pharisees undermined the authority of the word of God, and many do today, is they exalt reason above revelation. Exalt reason above revelation. Many of the tradi- traditions revered by the scribes and Pharisees were oral ones. They were spoken ones that had been passed down from generation to generation. In some cases, it was because of convenience. It was just a good idea. Uh, time forbids me to get into specifics there. We could. Some of them are ridiculous. But fast forward to the 18th century, the period known as the Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, when the Bible was under attack by so-called science. Of course, we look at what was called science back in, in the 18th century, and we scratch our heads and say, how little they knew. But the so-called science was attacking the Bible during the Age of Enlightenment, and science was supposed to be reasonable. The Bible is not unreasonable. The Bible is most reasonable. But we need to realize that we must let God's perfect standard, His revelation, stand in judgment on our finite, fallible, human reasoning and not vice versa. We need to use our reason, but we need to acknowledge that our reason is corrupt. Our reason is limited. Our understanding is darkened. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, this is what we should do, realizing that the, 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 the strongholds of satanic tyranny can only be pulled down by spiritual weapons. And Paul says, casting down imaginations, it says in the King James, that word means reasoning casting down humanistic reasonings and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the knowledge of Christ. I wish I could scream that verse from the top of every secular public university in America. If you are going to a secular university, and we have a number here today that are, and some listening by means of live stream, please take notice especially of that. Man, by reasoning, cannot find out God. Do not be intimidated by the elite crowd. Don't be poisoned by the intellectual snobs. They set themselves up as authority. They seem so smart. They seem so cool. But where is the offense of the cross among them? Where is the truth that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? Where is that? It's absent. Thirdly, and I'm done, the Pharisees and many today undermine the Bible's authority by rejecting its sufficiency. The constraints of time just preclude my, again my giving examples today. I have done this. In other, I preached a whole series on the sufficiency of Scripture several years ago. It's still available if you'd like to listen. May I just remind you that this matter of attacking the sufficiency of Scripture is really the subtle assault of Satan in our day. It's not so much an out-and-out out attack on the inspiration of the Word of God. Just like the Pharisees, they would not have been guilty of attacking the verbal inspiration of the Old Testament. But what did they do? They added their own glosses and traditions and reasoning and invested them with the same authority. Would you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1? Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us unto glory and virtue, aritas in the Greek, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. God has given us everything in this book that we need for life and godliness everything we need. It is our complete food source. It is our chart and our compass. It is our invincible armor. It is our superior weaponry. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is an alert system for danger. It is our power for life. It is our pillow in death. It's all we need. It's sufficient. Bible says in Psalm 138, verse 2, that God has exalted his word above all his name. Wow. Well, I've got to wrap it up. What do we have to have if we're going to enter the kingdom? Perfect righteousness. You say, Pastor, nobody's perfect. Oh, you're getting it. You're getting it. If nobody's perfect, then we're going to have to have a borrowed righteousness to be perfect. And the only person who's ever lived perfectly and has wrought out a perfect righteousness, his name is Jesus. And that righteousness is a gift, the Bible says in Romans 5 verse 17. Make sure you have that righteousness, not some man-made substitute because someday it's all going to be exposed and be burned up if, if you don't have the genuine article Don't leave earth without it, because you will not be admitted to heaven. Shall we pray? Our Father, thank you for Jesus who has worked out a complete and a perfect righteousness. And he offers it to us this morning, if we will only acknowledge that we are utterly bankrupt of that righteousness that you require. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. By faith we receive that perfect righteousness of God's dear Son, that alien righteousness, that borrowed righteousness. I pray that everyone under the sound of my voice this morning, whether it's here at Friendship Baptist Church or listening by live stream or later the the archive message, we will examine our foundations. We will make sure that, as the songwriter said, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, that we have been not only forgiven, but we have been justified, declared righteous in the sight of God. Oh, God, save that soul nearest hell this morning, and for those who are saved, Help us to reaffirm our faith in the all-sufficient Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.